0: To y'all, it's good to have some visitors with us today. Good to have Norm Stevens back. He's following me all over the country. I met you first, Norm, in Monroe, Washington, then North Carolina, and now back here. So, <laughs> back and forth. Good to have Echo back, and Austin's back with us, and some folks I've yet to meet in the back. Welcome. Good to have you this morning. All right, we are in Habakkuk chapter 2 as we continue our survey study of Habakkuk. Sometimes it's good to step back from an intense verse-by-verse and get an overview of the book, to get the entire message of the book. And that's what we're trying to do with Habakkuk uh, last week, this week, and next week, Lord willing. So we are in chapter 2. We're going to hit the ground running. I hope you have woken up. You won't get a chance to if you're not already awake. Uh, So this is our challenge this morning as we look at Habakkuk chapter 2. Return to the foundation of faith. And really it is the theme of the book. As you examine the contents and uh, the entire message of the scriptures, this is the foundation upon which Habakkuk writes chapter 3 in his praise and surrender to the God of Israel. So Habakkuk chapter 2, and before we begin, we will open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning. Such a simple verse and so foundational, so powerful, and so clear, one of the clearest in your Old Testament scriptures and what pleases you, Lord. We pray that you would help us uh, as your people, Lord. We know that we are saved by faith. We must walk by faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, uh, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so to walk in him this morning by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk has just got done pouring out his heart to God. We've we've, uh, examined the prophet's roaring in chapter 1. Now we see the prophet's reminder, Habakkuk's reminder, in chapter 2. And he ends chapter 1 on somewhat of a negative note. He's confused. He's taken up the righteous in his arms. His name means to embrace. And as the spokesman for his nation, as the spokesman for the righteous of his nation, he's taken them up in his arms. He has presented them to God, and he has said, Lord, it seems... As though you do not care. Now we know that God does not is not apathetic, He is not unconcerned about anything. But in my finite wisdom and in my struggle with my own flesh, I am tempted to think that there are times when God does not care or does not see. And you ask the Lord, What are you doing? And that's what Habakkuk has done in chapter one. God, what are you doing? And our challenge in chapter 1 was, take your frustrations to God. And what was the last last half of that challenge? Prepare to align yourself with his answer, right? And so now we come to chapter 2, and Habakkuk is uh, expecting a rebuke. If you read this carefully in verse 1, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. That's a military term. He's saying as, a, as the prophet of his nation, he was the watchman of Israel. Ezekiel is told, you are set as a watchman. You watch. You watch for the enemy to come. You sound the alarm. And that is a prophetic term, a military term used by the prophets of the Old Testament. He says, I'm going to stand upon my tower like a watchman looking for the enemy, only instead of waiting for an answer from God concerning that he can relay to the people about the, the nation, he's actually expecting the opposite. He wants God to answer concerning questions about himself and things Habakkuk has brought to the Lord concerning the nature and the workings of God. And he says, And I will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. I love that. It's almost as though Habakkuk is stepping back and saying, Lord, here's my complaint. It seems as though you don't care. I've poured out my heart to you. I've asked you, why is this? Why do the wicked prosper? How could you send the Babylonians, a people more wicked than us, to punish us? Why have you done these things? And it's almost like, have you ever struggled in your heart with the Lord about something that seemed to be unfair? Or you didn't, just, I'll be honest, you didn't flat out didn't like the way he was doing something. And you knew you were wrong. You knew there was an internal struggle. You knew your flesh was kicking around the authority of God. And you're battling and you're saying, Lord, maybe I just need a good dose of reproof. Answer me. Help me. Almost like you feel like that uh, gentleman who cried out to the Lord Jesus, "Uh, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And so Habakkuk, it's almost like with a little bit of temperature in his spirit, he's saying, I'm going to see what you have to say and what I'm going to say when you reprove me. It's almost as though he knew it was coming. And I love the Lord's answer. It's not harsh. It's not cruel. It's not, uh, it isn't even, it's maybe not even what Habakkuk deserved or what you and I deserve. But it was an answer of tenderness and an answer of instruction and an answer of a reminder for you and me to return to what really pleases God. You, and so we see the assurance of the vision. The Lord says, write the vision. And make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. This is the idea of writing something on a clay tablet or even on a leather scroll. And some believe, and I, and I would tend to agree with them, that oftentimes the prophecies of a prophet would be written on a leather scroll or a parchment or on stone or on clay tablets. And they would be displayed perhaps in the temple precinct for all to read and then to go and tell their neighbor and their neighbor to tell their neighbor and so forth and so on. So God says, I want you to make this prophecy clear on tablets. It's funny that he used a term that would describe what the Babylonians often wrote on. The clay tablet being their primary means of recording communications and transactions and religious ceremonies and so forth and so on. He says, you write it, you make it plain upon tables that the one who reads it may run, run and tell his neighbor. And that neighbor tells that neighbor. And the vision is spread abroad so that the answer that you've been asking for is made known to everyone. He says in verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And though there are often times in the kings of Judah, it's perceived that Babylon isn't going to come and punishment isn't going to come. And Zedekiah, even up to the, the time where where uh, 580 BC, where Nebuchadnezzar was besieging the city of Jerusalem and then withdrew temporarily as the Egyptians came up to fight with the Babylonians. Even during that time of transientness and and apparent destruction, even then he was saying, they're not going to come into this city. It's not going to happen. But God says, it'll come. It'll come. And later on, Paul will take this exact verse and then one following it and use it in Hebrews chapter 10 to assure you and I that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again in his kingdom. And so continue in faith because the just shall live by faith. Look at verse Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. You have a paradox in this verse. But the just shall live by his faith. Quoted three times in the New Testament. And in all three times, the original wording is literally the just by his faith he shall live. And it's emphatic. And it's emphasizing to you and I, even in the very grammatical makeup of the New Testament wording, that it is the faith in the foundation of God what he can do his ability his promises by which you and I will find access to his grace his mercy and thereby live and so here's this paradox behold his soul which is lifted up probably symbolizing the unrighteous in Habakkuk's nation along with the wicked Babylonians that were coming whose souls were lifted up in pride they weren't trusting in the God of Israel they were walking in their own wisdom walking in their own strength the Lord says his soul is not upright in him and God promises that pride will bring a person to destruction. And that the pride, proud will die. Isaiah, you don't have to turn there. We, we are uh, going to skim through some verses. You can if you want to. Isaiah 2, verse 17. I'm not going to spend a long time allowing people to get to these verses just because of time. But Isaiah 2, 17. Speaking of the end times, the coming of Christ, the destruction of the wicked, and the establishment of the kingdom. If you read the context, and the loftiness of man shall be brought low, shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. I love Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. Speaking again of Christ's return and of the establishment of the kingdom and the destruction of the wicked, Malachi 4.1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And if you look at Proverbs chapter sixteen five, you will find out there that the proud are an abomination to the Lord. Amen. And though hand join in hand, they shall not go unpunished. And so here's this paradox. The Habakkuk sees the proud whose souls are lifted up in them. They won't live. They won't have access to the Lord the lord resists the proud right Amen. but he gives grace to the humble Amen. pride is what got satan kicked out of heaven he said i will be lifted up i will be like the most high i will do this i will do that and timothy we're told a pastor who's not to be a novice shouldn't be a novice because lest being lifted up with pride he fall into what the condemnation of the devil which is what got the devil into trouble but the last half of the verse tells us how to have peace And gives Habakkuk the answer that he's been looking for. And it is much simpler probably than what his flesh wanted to hear. And it's always much simpler than what my flesh wants to hear. Because it always goes back to this one simple thing. The just by his faith he shall live. The just shall live by faith. Notice God didn't explain to him exactly why he was bringing the Babylonians. Notice God didn't explain to him exactly why he was allowing the wickedness of Judah to continue for so long. You notice that God didn't explain to Habakkuk exactly why the economic or the political or the military situation of his country was exactly the way it was. He just gave him a one line answer that was intensely simple but extremely foundational. And with that one line answer, God cut to the heart of the entire struggle and entire problem. And my problems are not as complex as I like to make them, they're usually quite simple it's usually the problem of God not being on the throne of my heart and Chris Bickish being on the throne of his heart. It's usually just a simple fact of the just by his faith he shall live for we walk by faith and not by sight. And I find when I'm struggling with something in my day-to-day life, whether it be a situation of, of work, whether it be a situation of my future, or whether it be a situation where God has me, whatever the case may be, I'm usually find at the end of the day. It goes back to this simple principle of my soul's lifted up and I would like to take charge and do things differently. Amen. But the problem is I need to humble myself and let God work the just by his faith we shall live. I want to I'll look at one principle before we move on from this Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9 and I will ask you to turn there Isaiah 7 verse 9 please Uh, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9 very quickly the context is Ahaz the king of Judah is experiencing attacks by the king of Israel to the north Um, in fact if you look at verse 9 we see uh, Samaria joined with Ephraim or northern Israel and so here you have Pekah, who is the son of Remaliah, spoken of in verse 9. You have the king of, of, of Samaria, Damascus, uh, or you have the king of, um, uh, of Ephraim, the king of Samaria. Or, I'm sorry. The king of Ephraim, the head of that is Samaria, because that's the capital. The king of northern Israel is Pekah at the time. Uh, he is also, if you read other portions of Scripture, scripture allied himself with the Syrians. And you have Ahaz worried about all these things. And Isaiah comes to him and he reminds him that, hey, you just need to trust in the Lord. And he says in verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son, or Pekah. If you will not believe, if you will not choose to believe, and it's an emphatic Hebrew verb that has the focus. The focus is you choosing to do something and making it happen. Okay, so the emphasis is on my choice. And my action to do this. If you will not believe. Surely you will not be. Now that is a passive verb. That shows the action being done to me. You will not be established he says. We think back to Genesis 15.6. Very simply where Abraham believed God. Literally he said amen in Jehovah. Is the wording. He said amen in Jehovah. He believed the Lord. And the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. He was established. And his seed was established. And the promises of God were established. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are established by faith in the work of God. right? That channel by which we access the grace and mercy of God. So without that, we will not be established. And Habakkuk is reminded of that in verse 4. But then the Lord, giving him an answer of peace and mercy... Reminds him, hey, I haven't overlooked the Babylonians. I haven't forgotten about them. I haven't I haven't been blind to one single thing they've done. And don't you worry. In my sovereignty I'll take care of the problem. But I'm not going to take care of it on your timetable. I'm going to take care of it on mine. (laughs) Because the thing is, you know what, we're all wicked. And I have no right to sit around and say, God, you should do this to America, you should do that to America, you should do this to the world because think of all the things that I've done against the Lord and do daily. And God sees all of that and he can balance all of that out. And my job, if I can just put it very bluntly, is to shut my mouth and let God take care of, of business. And let God be God. And so we see God's anger against Babylon. We see, first of all, four woes in this passage. The remainder of it. First of all, woe to the covetous. Yea, also because he, primarily I believe focusing on the king of Babylon. But this could be the, the righteous in general, but particularly the Chaldeans. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. He can't be content. He always has to be expanding his borders. He's a drunk. He's arrogant. He mocks. Shall not all these take up a parable against him? And a taunting proverb against him. Eventually, these nations are actually going to say this to the king of Babylon. And say, woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. This is really beautiful imagery. The literal wording is the one who is making heavy to himself or upon himself heavy debts. What happens when you walk through mud and it dries on your pant legs? It's heavy, isn't it? On the bottom of your shoes. And then you walk through a little more and it dries. And pretty soon you just can barely move. I remember as a kid being up in uh, northern Canada where my dad was a missionary. There was a lot of tundra. But we also had this big mud flat out in front of our house. The driveway was here, mud flat here. And it was just nasty mess. And if you went out there in the rain, you got stuck and you sunk. And, and I was rescued from that more than once when I was a little boy. And I remember trying to walk through that. And pretty soon you don't have your mud boots anymore you know they're back there and you're in your muddy socks trying to get home hoping you, you don't incite mom's wrath too much you know and uh, that's the idea and literally as the king of Babylon made his way through the nations and heaped to himself all people and gathered up that which was not his and took things and robbed and pillaged and murdered and all in the name of covetousness he was actually making himself heavy with these debts and God said pretty soon you're going to be like that guy with so much clay on him he can't move anymore then you're going down and people are going to mock you verse seven shall not they rise shall not shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee and thou shalt be for booties unto them because thou hast spoiled many nations all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee Because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, for the city, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Woe to the one who thinks that he is going to resist the inevitable, the promises of God concerning the wicked by making himself stronger. The rich man who says, well, I'm going to have more of this and I'm going to do more of that and I'm going to open another bank account and I have this assurance policy and I'll have this bigger house and I'll have this better car. In this instance, it was, I'll have this bigger city and I'll have these thicker walls and I'll have this better army and I'll do this and I'll do that. And as Nebuchadnezzar would say in chapter four, this is not this great Babylon that I have built for the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty. And we all know how that ended, right? (laughs) As we would see his... Uh, predecessor who years later Belshazzar whose father was Nabonidus as Belshazzar co-regent under his dad ruled Babylon he would say bring the, bring the vessels of the Lord and let's drink in them to our gods of gold gods of silver brass wood stone earth and yeah, we all know how that ended as well the handwriting on the wall got so scared his knees shook together and he was killed that night by the Persian army the Lord says here in verse 10 thou hast consulted shame to thy house, by cutting off many people, and has sinned against thy against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. And the Lord uses a metaphor here; he uses a simile. I think that's the right word. I always get those things mixed up: similes, soliloquy, metaphor, yeah. parol. It, it all gets jumbled around, but you know what I mean. Takes an inanimate object, gives its life, and uses as a as a teaching tool. He says, look, even the timber that you built your house out of, even the stones you made your house out of are going to mock you because it was all done in pride, arrogance, and against God. Against the mercies of God. Against the principles of the Lord. Against his original intention for his creation. And then he talks about the woes to the bloody. Woe to the bloody in verse 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? God says, look, it's it's of me that the efforts of the wicked come to naught. I've, I've planned it. I've ordained it. That no matter how hard they work in the end, they're working for the fire. It's the same preposition in the Hebrew Uh, text you could say for for the fire just as for vanity it makes no difference it's the same concept look they're laboring in the fire they're laboring for the fire that's their end and that was Babylon's end now it wasn't burned up in 539 BC when Cyrus took it over but you know what by the time we get to 600 AD there's nothing left of it nothing and it's just a, a, a scant memory. And it only the memory of it really only comes back into major existence uh, during uh, uh, the times of excavations in the 1900s. And then we see it around the news during Desert Storm, in the 1990s. You know, but it was, it's just a bleak memory. God says they're laboring for the fire. It's all for nothing. And I love how in the middle of all of this negativity, all this condemnation, all this talking about man and his wickedness, the Lord interjects this beautiful promise concerning his kingdom in verse 14. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And he's referring back to Isaiah chapter 9 where the context is unmistakably that of Christ and his kingdom where he is called the branch in verse 1 and we're told about what his kingdom is going to be like. In verse 6 he says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb indicating great peace throughout all the earth during the reign of Christ. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, the poisonous snake's no longer going to be dangerous. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice's den, another term for poisonous serpent of some form. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Where's the first time that expression shows up? Anybody know? Ever noticed that? I'll give you a hint. It's way back in the book of Exodus. The first time the Lord says, uh, basically he says to Moses, I've heard thee. He says, I'm not going to destroy the people. You've intervened for them. I'll pardon them. But as surely as I live, he says, the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a promise. And right here we see that promise. And right in the middle of all this negativity, God plops it down for us to remember, hey, your faith isn't in vain. There's coming a day when the whole earth is going to be full of this knowledge. Just as sure as the ocean has water in it. Verse 15. Now we see woe to the immoral. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. This word bottle is actually the Hebrew word for heat, wrath, or poison. And often in in the scriptures, in fact, this is the only place it's translated bottle because it's talking about alcohol. It is translated uh, heat, rage, poison, wrath. And God says, look, you have indulged in alcohol, which tends to engender these things. And you put your bottle, you put your heat, you put your poisonous drink to this individual. And you do it for immoral purposes. Probably the idea is one of of making a person drunk so that they can be exposed for the ridicule of other people or some other debauchery. And these things go on even in our own country today. They're alive and well. And so God turns around and he says in verse 16, thou art filled with shame for glory drink thou also and let thy foreskin be uncovered the cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee and shameful spewing shall be on on, on thy glory you like to make people drunk you like to expose them you like to be cruel to people well guess what you can drink of my wrath and the same thing's going to happen to you and all that glory all that Babylonian splendor all those beautiful clothes that people remember uh, uh, Achan what did he see that caught his attention that he loved so much and just had to have it It was a wedge of gold and a Babylonish garment, right? They were known for their garments. Beautiful clothing. God says, All of that is going to be covered with the puke puke of a drunk man when I get through with you. You think God, (laughs) you know, does this answer Habakkuk's question about, Lord, do you not see? You know, yeah, God sees. God sees. But remember what we looked at last week? To whom much is given, much is required? And when God uses a nation more wicked than the nation he's punishing? Well, maybe it's just because the nation he's punishing should have known better more than anybody. Mm-hmm. Because to whom much is given, much is required. And it's a rebuke to you and me. You know, when something comes into our life, Lord, how could you do that? You know, I'm better than that. Yeah, but you have a lot of light, a lot of knowledge. So why would you do what you did? Right. <laughs> and then we see woe to the idolatrous. <clears throat> what profiteth the graven image? And there's a lot of play on words here, and I will, I will do my best to bring that out what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of the work of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols the word behind idols is literally worthlessness and there's a play on words here because that word uh, plural word for worthlessness is is alilim what does that sound a lot like What do we say one of the Hebrew names for God is? Elohim. So God says instead of worshipping Elohim. You're worshipping Elohim. This worthless trash that can lead to no profit. That cannot help you. Woe unto him that saith to the wood. Awake to the dumb stone. Arise it shall teach. Behold it is laid over with gold and silver. And there is no breath at all in the midst of it. You say how far can my pride really take me? This far. You see, we are so deceived by our hearts and our pride that we can do some really dumb things. And you think, well, how could people be so stupid? Well, I'll tell you how people can be so stupid and so blind because we all have a heart that is desperate, uh, desperately wicked above all things. And will do nothing, will stop at nothing to get its way. That's how we get here. And uh, when I'm witnessing to people oftentimes in this society, I will say to them, look, Just because we're not doing some of the things in a third world country doesn't mean we can't. It's only by God's grace we're not there because we've been given some moral influence that's helped us avoid some of those things. But you take God's grace out of the picture and there's everything in my heart that's in the heart of the most wicked, profane, perverse individual alive today. Because we all have the same heart. That's how people get here. And I love what the Lord says in verse 20. We'll look at this and we will be done. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Literally, but the Jehovah is in the temple of his holiness. See, it isn't the stones and the beautiful architecture that make the temple holy. And God reminds Habakkuk of that. Look, it isn't the pretty stones, and it isn't the fact that at this time Solomon's temple was still standing. It isn't the fact that there's... uh, Oh, I don't even remember how many talents of gold he had that covered the walls of the temple. 600 talents or something insane. I did the math once, and it was billions of dollars just in gold inside that temple. Everything was overlaid in gold. The walls, the ceiling, I think the floor, if I remember right. Uh, everything was. All the furniture, all the ministry tools. Uh, in fact, gold was, what did it say, uh, silver was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. Right? It was of no worth. God said, it isn't all that that makes everything beautiful. It's my holiness. And when my holiness departs, the beauty departs as well. When you lose focus, when you lose focus of me, nothing else matters. Right? Like Jesus would tell the Pharisees years later, what do you think sanctifies the gold? (laughs) He says, it's the temple. You're saying the temple isn't anything, but the gold's everything. The temple's what sanctifies the gold. And God reminds us here, hey, it's my holiness that sanctifies the temple. The temple doesn't make me holy. And this is what sets Christianity apart from a lot of religions. A lot of religions are looking for some holy thing, some holy uh, ornament, something to make them closer to God. We're just the opposite. There are things that are holy because God is holy. Not the other way around. But the Lord is in his holy temple, the temple of his holiness. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Literally, hush before his face, all the earth. It's literally the wording. Hush before his face, all the earth. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so we have a paradox. We have these vain worshipers, worshiping in pride apart from faith, apart from the grace of God, crying out to their idols making all kinds of noise to an idol that doesn't hear just like the Baal worshipers in Mount Carmel were screaming and hollering and hollering out to Baal from the the morning to the time of the evening sacrifice and there was none answered nor any that answered nor none that regarded instead of a bunch of worshipers hollering and screaming and and bringing their fleshly efforts before God that doesn't hear the one true God says everybody shut up because I'm going to speak now everybody be quiet because I'm going to speak now and so with an answer like that it's not a difficult answer it's not a hard answer it's not one that we have to spend hours of theology trying to figure out it's very very simple Habakkuk I need you to return to this foundation of faith I need you to not walk by sight I need you to walk by faith I need you to not ask why I'm doing things the way I'm doing things all my previous promises they all stand Amen. they all stand I'm going to take care of things. You just keep your eyes on me, and don't you let your soul get lifted up, Because the one who lets his soul get lifted up is no longer upright, but the just shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you, Lord, for such a simple yet powerful reminder, and we all acknowledge, if we were honest, Lord, that it goes against our flesh, it, it grates against the way we think. We want to be on the throne of our hearts. But, Lord, you need to be there because you are righteous, we're wicked, you have all the wisdom, ours is limited, and, Lord, we need you daily. Uh, in you we live and move and have our, our breath. Uh, in you are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and so we uh, humbly flee to you this morning, and we choose, Lord, hopefully, all of us choose to return, even if it's just a renewed decision. We hope to, uh, we choose to return to this foundation of faith. We pray that you would, God, indirect in the morning service. Uh, give Norm the words uh, to speak, Lord, things that Amen. we need to hear. And uh, be with pastor in the evening service, Lord, him wisdom and to preach your word. And help us to receive with humility your Amen. scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.